Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Can you believe the Cleveland Metro Park Zoo refusing to come clean about how a wolf got free? The obfuscation that is involved every time you need information from the zoo is astounding. We're going to keep trying to figure out. I mean, what if it were a lion? It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here today with Lisa Garvin and Laura Johnston. Courtney Astolfi, who normally fills in on Wednesday for Layla Atassi, is on a much-deserved vacation. So Laura and Lisa are doing extra duty. Let's get to it. On the surface, Lisa, this looks like a wealthy, successful school district beating up on its less successful neighbor. But how did the Ohio Supreme Court say a contract was the deciding factor in forcing Warrensville Heights schools to pay the much wealthier Beechwood schools millions of dollars. The Ohio Supreme Court ruled four to three to uphold an earlier Eighth Court of Appeals decision that's based on a 1990s tax sharing agreement between Warrensville Heights and Beechwood about the Chagrin Highlands Corporate Park. That's a 405-acre development there. So the Supreme Court ruled that Warrensville Heights must share its tax revenue with Beechwood, despite the fact that the contract agreement they signed years ago was never approved by the Ohio Board of Education. But the Supreme Court ruled that that was not necessary. So Warrensville Height argued that laws on school district territory transfers weren't followed, which is why they appealed. But Chief Justice Maureen O'Connor, who wrote the uh, opinion, said that there was no actual transfer of territory, so the contract is enforceable. So let's go back and do a little history here. So in 1990, Beechwood annexed 405 acres from the city of Cleveland to create the Chagrin Highlands development, but it was in the Warrensville Heights school district. Well, Beechwood tried for years to get that annexed into their school district. They were unsuccessful. There was a compromise in 1997 that gave Beechwood 30% of the tax revenues when the value of the park exceeded $22.3 million. And then Warrensville Heights kept 70%. Um, so yeah. And then in, because of this agreement, then, uh, Beachwood withdrew its annex request. So in 2018, Beachwood sued Warrensville Heights for breach of contract. A trial court ruled that it was not enforceable because the BOE approval was required. As we now found out, the Supreme Court says that's not true. What's silly about all this is nobody really lives in the Chagrin no. Islands. It's a gigantic commercial district. So this is not about students. This is purely about the money. And the whole Chagrin Highlands thing is a bit cockeyed anyway. Cleveland owned land out in mm -hmm. the suburbs. And to for the suburbs to develop it, Cleveland insisted on this deal where they get half the income taxes that are generated by anything that's there. It was kind of holding... I think it was four different suburbs hostage, holding this this prime developable land hostage. When I moved to town, there was nothing there. Now it's filled with stuff. And this is an offshoot of that. And it 
it does seem awfully unfair. Beachwood is loaded with money. It's a very successful school district. Warrensville struggles. It has a lot more people in poverty, which is a really tough challenge for teachers as a future project of ours coming down the pike in a few weeks will demonstrate. But the contract's a contract. You know, Warrensville's on the hook. They agreed right. to it. I was, I'm a little bit surprised at how hard they fought it because the contract speaks. I, I also was surprised at the 4 3 split. Yes. And it wasn't Republican Democrats. It was Democrat. not. It was very <laughs> interesting. So the people that, that wrote the decision, the majority opinion was Maureen O'Connor, the Chief Justice, a Republican, Pat DeWine, and Sharon Kennedy, also Republicans. But then Mike Donnelly, a Democrat, weighed in on the, on the majority here. And then the dissenters, two Democrats, Melody Stewart and Jennifer Bruner, and then the lone Republican, Patrick Fisher. So yeah, very interesting. And actually, encouraging if you ask me yeah it's encouraging it also looks like they got it right i'm a little bit surprised that the three were trying to hang on to this very very technical aspect to say no it's not fair because the contract does speak pretty clearly about Mm -hmm. it beachwood did have a right to the cash so looks like the right thing happened it's today in ohio What persuaded members of the Cuyahoga County Board of Control to reverse a decision from a week ago and approve three quarters of a million dollars for a contract extension for consultants on a plan to build a jail on a toxic site? Laura, there there were some safeguards that they announced at the meeting where this happened to kind of get people to rest easy that they weren't committing this money. Absolutely. That the next administration that comes in in January will have a chance to cut it back. Correct. So this is $744,000 to two different contracts. And uh, the idea is you don't have to spend it. This is not committing that money. It's just saying we can spend the money and it's not even a monthly fee. It'd be per bit of work that they do. So you can back out anytime and you only pay for the services you ask for. And so this is going to Jeff Applebaum's Project Management Consultants, LLC. That's for uh, $400,000, bringing their total for the jail project to $2.47 million since 2019. And then the DLR Group and Westlake Rieliskowski as $343,880 for programming services through the end of 2023. They're looking at downsizing a previous proposal to put court facilities in the same building as the jail complex. So those two different things, but still about this jail where we are not 100% sure where it's going to go. There is a sentiment and evidence that the current administration and the sycophantic county council that gives them anything they want are trying to lock up these contracts, get as much money paid to the consultants as possible before the next administration comes in, because there are signs both candidates say they want to do something different. So it'll be interesting come December, and we'll have to revisit this then on this podcast, how much of the money was spent under these contracts. They said all the right things. We're not committed. It's not like buying a truck where you just spend all the money on the front end. We will be able to say, no, we won't spend the money when we get to certain places. But let's see how much of the money is actually spent and how handcuffed the next administration actually is. Yeah, I think, I mean, Nan Baker's the one lone dissenter here. She's a councilwoman. She's one of three council members on 
the board of control. And she said, I'm just not comfortable with this when we don't know where the jail is going. And we're expecting a study back very soon to kind of narrow this down. So I, I get it. If Why is there a rush on it? That's a good question. Yeah, it's because they want to get these guys taken care of before the next one. Look, we're coming up on the final hundred days of the Armin Budish administration. It, it's really time to be thinking about the future but we'll see. If they don't spend a lot of this money and they leave it for the next administration, all well and good. If if we find that they spent 700 of the 750K, we'll, we'll know for sure what this was about. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How can a cool million bucks buy you a piece of bona fide Cleveland history involving a guy best known for what he did in Chicago? And here's a hint. Kevin Costner played him on the big screen. Lisa, history lesson. There's a home for sale in Brattonall along Lakeshore Boulevard in which uh, former Prohibition Bureau uh, head Elliot Ness stayed for a while in the 40s. It's 10299 Lakeshore Boulevard. It was built in 1912 for banker Kaufman Hayes. It has six bedrooms, a third floor ballroom, an 800 bottle wine cellar. It's on sale for $995,000. But Ness stayed in the home when his prohibition days were actually long behind him. He was there in the mid 40s when he was the chairman of Cleveland based Diebold Safe and Lock Company. Um, but he has a long history in Cleveland. I didn't realize how, how connected he was to the city. So after prohibition ended, he became an alcohol tax agent first in Cincinnati, but then in Cleveland. In 1935, he was appointed by the mayor to be Cleveland safety director um, at the age of 32, and he was known for cleaning up crime and corruption in Cleveland back then. 1942, he moved to D.C., but he came back in 1945 to work with Diebold, and that's when he moved into this Lakeshore Boulevard house. But interestingly enough, though, this article showed he moved around a lot. I mean, he started out, you know, on Lake Road and Bay Village, and then he moved to the Hampton House Apartments on Lake Avenue with his second wife to the East Ninth Street. Street and Lakeside Apartment Building, which was right across from City Hall. He lived in Lakefoot for, for a while, and then he ended up in University Circle. I shouldn't say ended up there because he's actually uh, interred at Lakeview Cemetery. You can see his uh, gravesite there. Current owner Donna Schwartz had this house for over 40 years. She says she doesn't have any Elliott Ness memorabilia except for one thing. She has a framed $50 check that Ness wrote to the Statler Hotel back in 1946. They surmise that it was probably a bar bill and $50 back then would be $760 in today's money. Now that's a big bar bill. That's <laughs> <laughs> For a guy who was, you know, fighting to enforce prohibition, it's interesting that he had such a big barbell. There, is, the house is beautiful. Bob Higgs' story contains pictures of it, and the woodwork gorgeous. inside is just gorgeous. But it has a weird element to it that I think drops the price some. It's that it's kind of joined to another house because when this was built, it was part of a multi-family like, or, or a single family, but multi, multi-part family. Right, compound. correct. And and two, the, the, this house is joined to another house. I think there were four built overall on the compound, but it's joined to another house both on the first and second floor through a, a sun porch. So yeah, I don't, I, I assume they're selling these separately. I, I, I wasn't sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, they are. I mean, and maybe eventually you can buy the other one, but I, I don't know. You spend all that kind of money. I don't know that you really want to be living in a would-be duplex. So, but it is, it is beautiful, and it is a piece of history. Check out Bob Higgs' story on Cleveland.com. This is the first of a 
occasional series about the history of old houses in Cleveland. It's today in Ohio. How are robots getting in on the game to reduce bits of plastic and other trash on the Lake Erie shoreline? Laura, we turn to our Lady of the Lake. This is so cool. These robots will be here in the next month or so. One is going to scour and rake sandy beaches to remove bits of plastic and other debris that the big tractors that uh, rake the beach won't be able to get. And then they'll the other one will skim across the water in places like North Coast Harbor, do the same, also get stuff that the flotsam and jetsam uh, boats that the port has cannot get. And this is all part of the Great Lakes Plastic Cleanup that was launched in 2020 by the Council of the Great Lakes Legion and pollution probe in Canada. And there's actually a million dollar grant from Meyer that's paying for this. So if you see the robot on the beach, it's like decorated and it says Meyer on it. Um, kind of looks the way the ad is on it, like a like a Zamboni does it in the uh, ice rink. But they have the best names. B-bots are the ones that clean the beaches and pixie drones are the watercraft on the uh, cleaning up the water. So this is like the waterfront version of the Roomba. They <laughs> yeah, just drove around. I mean, they should put crab legs on them, make them look like sea creatures or something. So they'll just go back and forth nonstop, I guess have to recharge now and again, and pick up stuff for yeah. that people leave behind in the bits of broken plastic that is in between your beloved well, beach glass. Exactly. No, go I was ahead, just going to say, and Laura, you may have noticed this too, I've noticed a significant decrease in plastic junk on the beach in the last couple of years. I do think people are more aware of it and there are lots of public beach cleanups, which is, is good to see. Um, it depends on the season and how recently the crews have been there, but it's, it's nice that so many people are taking pride in them and the Bebot can cover 32,000 square feet in an hour. I mean, that's massive. Um, it can collect debris as small as 10 millimeters or less than half an inch and the pixie drone, which Pixie, you think it's pretty small. 200 pounds of material it can pick up in a single trip, sucking up debris as small as three millimeters at the tenth of an inch. It also records water data like temperature, turbidity, and dissolved oxygen. So be able to use that for research. And this story, I should say, is from Pete Krause, who does a great job covering the environment. And I just I found it fascinating. So dissolved oxygen, but not sewage from the outfall. <laughs> I mean, that would be that's helpful. Probably you could probably measure sewage somehow through oxygen. But um, there's going to be 18 locations in Ohio, Michigan, and Wisconsin that share this equipment. You're going to first see it this year at Edgewater, uh, but it will be used in other places across Northeast Ohio. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. Will there ever be a time when Donald Trump does not make regular appearances in Ohio? Please. What is the latest plan for him to rally in the Buckeye State, Lisa? Yes, the 45th president will be coming to Youngstown for a J.D. Vance campaign rally on September 17th at the Covelli Center. And here's the thing. It's like an all-day event. The doors open at 8 a.m. The event starts at 4 o'clock, and then Trump is expected to speak at 7 p.m. And this comes pretty much after Florida Governor Ron DeSantis held a rally in Trumbull County you know, for J.D. Vance earlier. And to note, both of these rallies are in Tim Ryan's congressional district, you know, which trended GOP uh, in 2016 and 2020, but had been kind of solidly Democratic democratic up until then. But uh, it, it, it'll it be interesting to see how, you know, because Trump goes to these rallies, you know, to help his campaign, you know, his uh, uh, his chosen candidates, but he never talks about them. Well, the, the 
the problem with this is that Vance already has the Trump voter. I mean, that, 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 those, those are in his pocket. What they don't have and both are fighting for are the centrist voter. And I don't think Donald Trump's going to appeal to those. The guy is increasingly unhinged. The revelations coming out about his taking top secret documents and the, the missing stuff. It's just bizarre what's going on with this guy. I, I'm not sure how much this helps unless it's just to get out the vote by those who are already Trumpy voters. But the battle for Ohio is a battle for the Senate. Yeah, you're right. But, you know, Trump is, you know, he lo- he loves a good rally. He's not going to turn down a good rally. And this is a way for him to grind his axes. And that's what he's done. He has so many candidate rallies, you know, for people he supports and endorses. But he ends up just having a litany of grievances and maybe has a couple, oh, yeah, vote for Mr. Smith over here. And by the way, we should rerun the 2020 election. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know if this, I mean, Tim Ryan could actually use this to, to gain with the center. This could have a backfire effect. Trump was successful in getting the Republican primaries to put up some of his candidates like Vance. But in the end, the center is what decides the election. We'll have to see. Uh, Trump did win Ohio by significant margins both times he ran. It's today in Ohio. Is it just a sign of distrust in a public official who refused to do his duty under the Constitution by drawing fair legislative maps that has people questioning a mailer from Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose? Or, Laura, do people have real reason to be suspicious? No real reason. I think people are more confused than suspicious because it is confusing. I forget between elections if we're going to be getting absentee ballot applications. And Frank LaRose hasn't really been known for helping people vote. But um, these are legit. If you got a mailer from Frank LaRose that says it's a ballot application, it is, in fact, a ballot application to get your vote by mail ballot. Remember, you have to fill out a piece of paper to get a piece of paper to fill out in order to vote in the election. And it doesn't look the same as the Cuyahoga Board of Elections ones you might be used to that have a lot of yellow spaces where you, to make sure that this is where you're supposed to be filling out your information. But you can send it in uh, the way that it's it has a barcode on it and, and an envelope, and you can send it in and you will get your ballot. And if I recall correctly, this has been happening since 2012. Every four years, it was a showdown between John Kasich and Ed Fitzgerald over sending out these ballot applications. Well, I, I, I'm not surprised that people are suspicious of something coming from Frank LaRose. I mean, he has been, he didn't uphold his oath to support the constitution. He was part of the redistricting commission. They didn't do their job. The Supreme court repeatedly called him on it and, and he plays games. He's become Trumpier and Trumpier. You know, when the, after the election, he was very quick to say, we have great elections and security in Ohio but then he goes to his little gatherings and says, oh, yeah, elections are in flux. So I don't think people in Cuyahoga County especially trust the guy because he's not trustworthy. So when they got the mailing, they started calling the local right. elections office to say, hey, hey, is this real or is he playing games to keep me from voting like he's done elsewhere? Right. And that's just- why we had a press conference by our local elections board to clear it up. Yeah. Can you just imagine like what if it had the wrong address? It was like some junk P.O. box. It was like, oh, never got your application. You can't vote. But no, that would be diabolical. So um, you can use these. The Board of Elections says they're fine. Uh, just, you know, basically ask for your name, your date of birth, your address where you're registered to vote and your signature. And a personal 
personal identifying number, usually the last four digits of your social security number or the driver's license number. And that's what you can, I'm, I, this reminded me to mail it back in. So I've, I've got mine in my mailbox today. You cannot receive your absentee ballot until October 12th. And they're expecting about 142,000 people in Cuyahoga County to vote by mail in November. These were sent to 8 million registered voters across the state. This is what happens, though, when you have elected leaders who are more loyal to their party than they are to the constituents, the natural level of distrust, the breakdown in the belief of government. And I think what we saw yesterday was a sign of that. Well, I'm glad that they addressed it, right, that they were very transparent and they said, go ahead and use it and um, trying to be upfront about the information, getting people to to vote. Yeah, there's a lesson there for the Cleveland Metro Park Zoo. Be transparent. Explain. We pay your salaries with our taxes. You owe us an explanation. We'll get it. Story will come. It's today in Ohio. Has Ohio's restaurant industry fully rebounded from the crushing blows it took during the pandemic? Lisa, one of the, we chronicled it over and over again, just how badly hit the restaurants were. The, the pandemic stimulus funds didn't begin to help bail them out. A bunch of them closed. Is it over? Are they back? Well, yes and no. And actually, to a casual observer and a restaurant goer like me, I usually go once or twice a week. I mean, restaurants are crowded, you know, so you'd think, oh, it's back. But an Ohio Restaurant Association survey done last month found that 56% of restaurant operators reported sales declines in recent months. A National Restaurant Association survey said that 46% say things are worse than they were three months ago. This uh, NRA survey also showed that 91% of Ohio eateries have raised their prices. 65% have had to change food and beverage options on their menus due to pricing and supply issues. So Mark Bona, our reporter, talked to a couple of uh, restaurant owners in Cleveland. Ninja City owner Dylan Fallon says staff burnout is a huge problem with him. He says inflation and staffing issues issues are problems in themselves, but then they create more problems down the road. He said, you know, the cost of labor in restaurants has been flat for way too long. And all of a sudden, you know, they're having to pay their people more, which is a good thing, but it affects menu prices. So uh, Fallon is doing multiple business lines to help stay afloat. He's got a catering contract with Jacob's Pavilion. He has satellites opening soon in Tower City and Huntington. He says that's how he's staying alive. And Chef Andy Dombrowski of the Collision Bend Brewing Company and Alley Cat Oyster Bar says that, you know, higher pay and trained staffers are crucial, but it's going to come out in the menu prices. He says, you know, people are constantly complaining about prices, he says, but hey, you know, if you want a $12 burger, you can go to eat one at a dive. If you want a burger with a beautiful view of the waterfront, you come to my place. You probably eat out more than others on the podcast. Have you noticed that service is getting quicker again, that they seem to have fuller staff? Yes, I have noticed that. And, you know, a lot of the restaurants I go to, like Jack's Deli and Fotang, but downtown are always busy, but they always seem to have enough wait staff to help them. For a while there, when you went to a restaurant, you just accepted that it was going to take a lot longer to to get service just because they were so short-staffed. And I think most people understood that. Uh, but it does seem like in recent months there has been a rebound of sorts. So good to hear. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Our videographer, John Panna, undertook a grueling bike ride to help out a bunch of kids at the Boys and Girls Clubs. Laura, what did he do? How did he do? And what was the surprise result for the children? 
So this was the most demanding challenge that John Panna could come up with. And I got to gotta give my my hat to him because this is totally is 100% his idea, um, an effort to get all these sponsors, make this thing happen. He wanted to ride 100 miles on the towpath from New Philadelphia to the old Coast Guard station in downtown Cleveland. And if he could do this in a day, he would get an attorney to donate five bikes to the kids at the Broadway Avenue Boys and Girls Club. And they were going to film it all. They did film it all. And John could earn additional prizes along the way if he did a bunch of physical challenges, like a bunch of push-ups. Or I think at one point they had a guest who climbed onto a horse statue. I mean, so, but I don't think that John could have prepared for what happened. There was like, they, they had a, a thunderstorm when they were riding through Akron where they saw a huge cloud to ground lightning strike straight ahead of us. There's a photo of it that we actually ran online and in print. Like there's the lightning right then. Uh, so they took shelter under a bridge. Um, they were chilly. They were soaked through. He, he didn't have a rain jacket. Um, his gears on his bike were not working. So they had to stop and get that fixed at Ernie's bike shop in Maslin. So by the time they reached downtown Cleveland, it was pitch black. They had lights on their bikes, but John said it was really creepy. There was bats flying <laughs> overhead. And when he got to the end of the ride, he never checked his odometer. He was at 99.7. So he ended up finishing his ride with the kids from the uh, Boys and Girls Club. And had a big reveal where they said, yes. hey, those bikes that you just ride to help John, they're yours. And then yes. another company donated scooters. Let's give credit where credit is due, though. John had some significant coaching help from one of Cleveland's preeminent bicyclists. Who is she and how did she help him? Yeah, that's Diana Hildebrand. And I think she basically coached him on this entire ride. You know, she's the one who said, bring your rain jacket. She's the one who said, let's leave at 530 in the morning, even though they he didn't, didn't do any of it. <laughs> <laughs> she's the one who came up with the challenges and she's going to coach these kids on their bikes too and give them bike lessons. So, um, yeah, I, I, she sounds like an amazing human being and uh, they, they made a great team. But I, I think this was even harder than John had anticipated. And he made it as hard as he could. People love the story. I heard from a bunch after we ran it. We had let them know a story like this was coming without giving away the surprise and heard a lot about it. You can check out John's story and the photos of him and the kids all on cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. NOPEC tried to help more than a half million customers by booting them from the NOPEC rolls onto their own utility accounts to save them money. Now that move is being challenged. Lisa, who's fighting, saving a lot of people a lot of money? Wholesale supplier Dynegy, which uh, provides 32% of the power to customers on First Energy Standard Service, is asking the Public Utilities Commission to stop NOPEC from switching 550,000 customers to other suppliers to save those customers money. NOPEC uh, was paying 12 cents a kilowatt hour, and that was way above the First Energy default rate of 6.76 0.8 cents for a kilowatt hour. So they wanted to move those customers over temporarily to save them money. Dynegy, however, says this switch will be, have a potentially devastating impact on the Ohio electricity market. They would have to ramp up their services to fill the needs of these extra half million customers, and they'll have to shop on the o open market to meet demand, which would probably drive prices up. So, you know, customers, you know, they don't always understand their bills, but you're billed by 
first energy, but you're charged separately for your supplier, the one that you choose, uh, whether you're in the standard or your NOPEC or you choose another supplier. And back in August, NOPEC announced this move. They are moving 97.5% of their customers and they will pick them back up in 2023. Uh, Dynegy spokeswoman Miranda Cohn says all customers will be hurt by this in the long term. She says, also, that NOPEC customers have been overpaying since December 2021. So why didn't they make this move sooner? Yeah, I just don't know what grounds they have to stop it. I mean, it's if NOPEC wants to say we're done, we're, we're kicking them back, they all have the right to go back to their other supplier. Um, it seems like a, a pretty selfish move. And I don't know what right they have, but does this, is this a PUCO decision that we'll, we'll get? I'm assuming they're asking PUCO to stop NOPEC from doing this. So I assume it's up to PUCO to make the decision. Well, they often don't make decisions that are in the best interest of Ohioans. So we'll have to see what they do with this. But I would like to think that they would help the customers save a bunch of money, especially in these inflationary times. Good stuff. We'll be following it. We'll let you know what comes of it. It's Today in Ohio. That does it for a Wednesday discussion. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, everybody who listens. Layla will be back on Thursday, and we'll be talking about the news. 